0: Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church podcast. we're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul Over the past several weeks we have used Luke's Gospel to focus in on the last hours of Jesus' life. From the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples when he was in that upper room and we heard him say this represents my body which is broken for you, this cup, my blood that is shed for you. We've seen him in agony as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, this cup of of the wrath of God against sin that was placed solely on him. Yet not my will, Jesus prays, but yours be done. We've seen the betrayal of Judas, his friend, who kissed him to identify him to an angry mob. We've seen the denial of Simon Peter, the one who was supposed to be the leader of this movement that Jesus was beginning. We've heard the accusations against Jesus from religious leaders, political leaders, before crowds, We've seen His crucifixion. As Jesus was paraded through the crowded streets of Jerusalem, carrying His cross to where He would be hanged between two thieves, Jesus has died. Put to death under the authority of the Roman government because of the insistence of the Jewish leaders and in the intensity of the crowd. He had simply not Fit into the mold that they expected, that they desired for who their Messiah would be, who their Messiah should be. And because He didn't fit into their mold, while at the same time claiming to be God, it was just too much. So the conniving, the mocking, the stirring up the crowds, the forcing of the hand of Pilate, all orchestrated to put an end to Jesus, he was executed. The reading from last week included this phrase about Jesus, he breathed his last. The only thing left to determine is where to place his body. Our reading for today. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. So this is that same council made up of chief priests and scribes, teachers of the law, the same ones who were so opposed to Jesus, Joseph, who was a member of that council, look how Luke describes him, was a good and upright man. It's as if Luke is trying to make that statement stand out like, wow, there actually was one of them one who wasn't so puffed up with pride, who wasn't so full of himself, he could actually consider that God was up to something in the person and work of Jesus. This man, Joseph, had not consented to their, that's the council's decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, But they rested on the Sabbath, that's their worship day, Saturday for us. They rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. I want to show you a picture. What you're seeing is the entryway to an ancient tomb. The entire area around it is built up. So much so, in fact, that there's a fairly large garden in which this tomb sits. And every year, about a quarter million people come to this place to remember, to celebrate. Why? Why here? Because it is proposed as one of two possible sites for Jesus' actual burial. The truth is, we don't know exactly where Jesus was buried. Why? Because He's not there. (laughs) That's the big idea. We do know, however, that it was either in a place, this exact place, or a place much like it. And we say that for several reasons. Number one, we read in the gospel accounts that Jesus was laid outside was led outside, laid into a tomb, outside the city walls. And in Hebrews, it tells us it was outside a city gate that he was buried. If you go there today, you'll find that this tomb meets that requirement. It is outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. Number two, we are told that it was alongside a busy thoroughfare. You enter into this place, you experience that very thing to this day. Number three, that we are told that he laid in a new tomb located in a garden. We've already established this would meet that requirement. Number four, that he was laid in a stone tomb. That's most assuredly the case here. Number five, in fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 53, given 700 years in advance, we are told that he would be buried with the rich in his death, Even though he was poor and homeless, we see following his death, we just read from Luke 23 that one of the council members, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy, prominent follower of Jesus, gifted Jesus his tomb. So, all of that would fulfill that prophetic announcement. Number six, we're told in the Gospels that Jesus' tomb was near the place of His crucifixion. So not a far distance from the place of the crucifixion would be His tomb, that place that is referred to as the place of the skull. In Hebrew, it's Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary. I want to show you another picture. This is just to the right of that tomb that we just that I just showed you a picture of. And I want you to pay particular attention to the middle of the rock face, (laughs) literally. Can you make out what looks like two eye sockets and maybe the bridge of a nose in between? The place of the skull? Number seven, we are told in the gospel accounts that upon entering the tomb, after Jesus' resurrection, His disciples that that rushed to see if it's true that He's not still held in the tomb, we're told in the gospels that they had to stoop. Well, back to that original picture, this entryway is much larger than it was 2,000 years ago. So that certainly meets that requirement. And number eight, The main requirement for the potentiality of this being the resurrection tomb of Jesus is that nobody would be in it, and that's certainly the case. So if it's not this place, it gives us insight into the kind of place where Jesus' body lay temporarily. Why the emphasis on all this? To illustrate the fact that Jesus died. He had to. As Hebrews 9.22 points out, it was the last verse that David read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus had to die. That means that the cross was absolutely essential for our salvation. So what was that all about? What was the cross of Jesus all about? I'll tell you what the cross of Jesus was all about. It was about the wrath of Jesus of God against sin coming down on His Son instead of on His people. It was the only way God, to, God could destroy sin and not destroy His people whose hearts are full of sin. You know, recorded in John's Gospel, Jesus cries out from the cross, It is finished. And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the world from its sin. Now, the cross, while it has become for us such a strong symbol of our faith, at its time was anything so opposite of that. It was the most godless symbol. It was a means of Roman execution. It was a means of killing the lowest of the lows, folks that were in the category of slaves and rebels and criminals. In fact, crucifixion was so heinous, the process that it put a person through, that the Roman law was in place that no Roman citizen could die on a cross. Now, as we think about the cross, we're immediately drawn to the physical suffering that Jesus most assuredly endured, and it was severe, beaten and whipped beyond recognition, so exhausted that they had to compel someone else to carry His cross onto the place of the skull. But as we read the four Gospels little time is spent on Jesus' suffering. Now some, that has allowed some to say, well, it's because 2,000 years ago, first century world, crucifixion was known. We didn't have to detail all the horrors of it because everybody who was reading that at the time would have known exactly what was being talked about. I think there is a lot of merit to that, but I also think there's something more, there's something deeper, there's a deeper focus from these gospel writers You see, the cross was the ultimate symbol of shame and rejection. But make no mistake, Jesus allowed this to happen to himself. Could he have called on a host of angels to squelch any opposition? Absolutely. He even tells his followers that in Matthew chapter 26. But here in his weakened state, Jesus being put through all of this allows him to take our place, to stand in for us. So we've seen how that has already worked earlier in Luke 23. Jesus extending forgiveness to those who are actually nailing him to the cross. Jesus assuring one of the thieves that he will be with Jesus in his eternal paradise. From noon until 3 p.m., the whole land was shrouded in darkness. The sunlight had failed. And more than just darkness from no sunlight, but remember back in Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus said, this is the hour of darkness. Darkness was raining. So, what Jesus came to accomplish, his blood, the once for all sacrifice we needed, not to cleanse us outwardly, but to cleanse our hearts and minds and souls from the condition of sin, from the pollution of sin. Only through Christ could the way be opened. So, Jesus breathed his last. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the light of the world, died. And we saw the reactions of the people around him. The centurion repents and praises God and says, Surely this was a righteous man. The women who had followed in the crowd had beat their breasts in grief because they couldn't even imagine what to do with themselves as they watched the only sinless one ever die, confused and heartbroken were his followers. But Jesus' death accomplishes so much for us that just one image would not cover it all. So I wanna share with you several things that Jesus' cross accomplishes. Number one, Jesus' death saves us from our sins. If anyone does sin, which is all of us, we have an advocate with the Father someone who's gonna stand alongside of us. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he is our salvation. Jesus took on our sins. He took on the penalty we deserve and stands in our place. Second Corinthians 521 shares with us, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin. He was sinless. He made Him to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is our substitute. Also from the same passage, we see that Jesus gives us His righteousness. Our ability to stand as sinners before a holy God, a holy and perfect God, Jesus gives us that ability. So He is our righteousness. And He's not just our salvation. He's not just our substitute. He cleanses us from all our guilt. We are promised this in 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Not just forgive us, cleanse us. Purify us. Remove the stain that is on us. He is our, here's a churchy word, expiation then. There's more. There's a relational aspect that Jesus reconciled us to God. From 2 Corinthians 5, we also read this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He is our reconciler, the one that restores us to a right relationship with God. He also secures our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4, Jesus' death was to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, daughtership, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. What's more, Jesus has freed us from the slavery of sin when he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Redemption is a word that comes from Old Testament times and slave versus free connotation. A person who had become indebted to someone else could not pay it back. You would become their slave. You'd have to work it off that way. But someone, especially a family member, could come along and purchase your freedom. Buy your way out of That indebtedness. You know what that person was called who did that? The Redeemer. (laughs) That's who Jesus is for us. He bought our freedom our freedom from sin, from guilt, from shame, from death. But it wasn't a, a price of coinage, it was his life. so the cross was not jesus's ultimate defeat it in fact was his victory we know that because he secured it with his resurrection he defeated sin and death for us undoing the conditions that all of us find ourselves in so we look at a godless symbol the cross and we look at what seems and feels like a godless moment. and We need to feel the weight of all of that shame and rejection and upheaval and reversal that comes through the cross because if we don't, then we'll never understand how important the cross of Jesus is. You see, without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, the penalty remains that we cannot pay. Without the cross, guilt still covers our souls. Without the cross, no one is righteous. Without the cross, God's wrath sits over us. Without the cross, our relationship with God is forever broken. Without the cross, we are orphans. Without the cross, we remain subject to our own desires and sin. Without the cross, death still remains. But with the cross, on account of the cross, a great reversal has taken place. And my prayer for us is even in the moment of ultimate darkness, it was certainly for Jesus, but even in your moment of darkness, whether that's a situation that you're going through, a sin that has overwhelmed you, that you will see the light of Christ shining, that it will shine within you, that He will speak to you, that God's Spirit will move within and so that you will be able to call on the name of the Lord Jesus no matter what amount of darkness. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.